and it will look like a spider crack, uh, spider cracking like in a window or something like that. But it, it those points, if it's bad enough, though, that means that those parts are about to fall out. Like they literally, like I've had it where guys brought casting brace from a certain manufacturer here and you pull on the front casting brace and the whole front cap just comes off the boat. That was Justin Weinberg with a great tip on knowing what to look for in a used fiberglass drift boat. The bonus drift boat season keeps rolling on. This is the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. We'll help you on your fly fishing journey with classic stories covering steelhead fishing, fly tying, and much more. Hey, how's it going today? Thanks for stopping by the Fly Fishing Show. If you get a chance, head over to wetflyswing.com slash Facebook to join our private community and ask some questions of upcoming guests. Justin Weinberg is here to share the story of Adipose Boatworks and the background on fiberglass boats and the river skiff. Justin shares some background on how they build the skiff, what popular accessories uh, are available and some tips on finding a used boat. We, uh, we dig into a lot of things here, including a little story on Justin's background in the Army. Really interesting to hear the transition there. So, without further ado, here is Justin Weinberg from AdipostBoatWorks.com. How's it going, Justin? Good, how are you, Dave? I uh, really appreciate you having me on here today. Yeah, yeah, thanks for coming on. This is this is going to be uh, pretty fun. We're going to dig into some more on boats. We're doing a uh, like a drift boat season. The cool thing is, is we've got the drift boat season and we've got the fishing because you guys are obviously hitting it pretty good with some of the, you know, the skiffs and some of the boats you guys have going. So we're going to talk about that whole story. Um, but maybe before we get to, to the adipose story, just talk about how you first got into like fly fishing and found yourself in like boats and boat building. Yeah, so I grew up in uh, West Michigan, and where I grew up, uh, fishing in Michigan is pretty big, and so uh, a lot of it was just still water stuff, and so growing up, fished for a lot of panfish and a lot of bass, and that kind of stuck with me uh, all through my younger years, through high school and and beyond. Uh, When I was 14 years old, I came out to Montana and visited an uncle who has, uh, aunt and uncle who have a place, uh, right by Reynolds Pass Bridge on the Madison. And we went fishing there, fly fishing for the first time. And we did two different days, walk, wade and, and different stuff. And then I, one evening I, uh, during a caddis hatch, I caught like a nice 17, 18 inch brown on a dry fly. And I was hooked. I, distinctly remember we were walking back to the car to, to go back home that night. And I looked at my dad and I said, I'm going to move here. And, uh, yeah, I was 14 at that time and life went on. And, uh, I joined the army when I was 17 years old, uh, in between my junior and senior year of high school, I went to basic training and then came back, finished out my senior year and then, uh, went into the uh, national guard and, uh, did a six-year contract with the National Guard, and during those six years, I did three years active duty, and I uh, did a deployment to Iraq in 07-08, and got back from that, <clears throat> and I was I got engaged, and my fiance at the time 
was uh, graduating from University of Michigan, and she knew that she wasn't going to be able to find a job in Michigan because the unemployment rate was 22% there. And we, so she was applying for all spots all over the country for a new job. And she asked me if you could live anywhere, where would you want to live? And I said, Montana. And so she, she got a job in Montana. Luckily out of about 400 jobs she applied for, she got one here and we just picked up and moved everything uh, pretty quickly. And then when I got out here, I was finishing up my contract with the army and doing a little bit of construction. And I got laid off because it was a slow season and I was perusing Craigslist one night and I saw a job for lamination work. And, uh, I had no idea what lamination work was, but I know how to work with my hands and I know how to build stuff. And so I, I called the number just expecting it was like eight thirty, and I, I was just expecting to leave a voicemail. Uh, someone answered and it ended up being the owner of the company, Mike Ward. And I just told him who I was and he said, yeah, come down tomorrow for an interview at nine. I did an interview that day. The next day I called and asked if there's anything I could do to, uh, kind of help out and any info they needed and stuff. And they said, they'd let me know by the end of that day. And, they called me around three o'clock and told me I got the job. And so hmm. at that time I was really just getting into fly fishing pretty, this was, so this was uh, June of 2010. So I, I moved to Montana in February of 2010 and I was really fishing as much as I could at that point and fly fishing, I should say. Uh, and then yeah, once I got hired on here as Adipose at a as a just a laborer, I was sleeping floors and and building boats. Uh, we just started building, finished the first boat right when I came on board, uh, and then from there we, yeah, just created the whole process and started building. And and Mike, being the awesome guy that he is, he he really took me under his wing and uh, took me fishing a bunch and taught me a, just a ton. I was on a uh, fast learning curve for getting proficient at fly fishing stuff. And from there it, it, uh, it really took off. And then at the same time, my growth and knowledge with drift boats happened. And that's how, uh, Tracy Allen, the, one of the other founders of Adipose, he was, uh, the, the brains to, behind the design of the boats. And so I learned, a ton about design and fiberglass and and mold making and stuff from him and then uh in hand in hand with that i learned a ton about fly fishing and just angling in general from mike and so it was a pretty cool opportunity and i i saw it and i just ran with it nice and then so the f company well i want to get into some of the background there on the history you know as far as the company obviously in the connection but i want to go back to the the, the army piece uh, quickly because you, you jumped in when you were 17 and for me you know <laughs> my story's a little different i was kind of always uh, you know although i love you know obviously uh, my country and our, and our country and stuff i mean i was always scared uh, kind of uh, shitless of the army never really wanted to i knew that was one thing i didn't want to do i mean why why for you did you feel like you had to go in even before you graduated from high school oh man i was a pretty wild child um definitely raised uh a lot of hell with, with my parents and just everything and i <clears throat> i 
I was always a little bit different. I grew up in a family of, of four siblings, so six of us and stuff. And um, I had a teacher when I was in middle school that was in the National Guard. And then I had my grandpa was in World War II. Well, both my grandpas and my grandma on my mom's side was uh, were in World War II. And it just always kind of drew me in. I to be completely honest, I like shooting guns and I mm-hmm. like lighting stuff on fire and blowing stuff up. And so I, uh, I was like, there's no better way to, <laughs> to kind of go along with that and get paid for it. And so that was, um, I went in as a 19 Delta, which would be a cab scout. So, uh, on paper, our mission was reconnaissance and, uh, you kind of go in, sneak around, find the enemy and report and, yeah. and stuff from there. And then, we had some pretty cool weaponry and it was, I like uh, in a lot of ways I'm kind of a loner. So I like the small group aspect of, uh, of the scouts versus, uh, bigger platoons and stuff with mm. the infantry. Yep. And, uh, yeah, just again, uh, sneaking around, I've always been a, a hunter and a, a fisherman and just kind of getting close to prey. And so that's, that's kind of my deal. And, yeah. And so I, I saw the opportunity and I definitely knew, that I was not going to college. Um, that was, that was biggest for me is like, I barely graduated high school. I did the absolute minimum so that I could leave because I hated it that much, but it was, uh, so that was kind of just the natural path for me. And then I had, uh, two other buddies that we all, we all joined the military at the same time, essentially. And we all just took a little bit different paths, uh, within the military and uh but yeah that's that's kind of how i ended up in it i would have stuck with it for a really a, a, a lifetime career but a couple things happened throughout my life that just made it where it wasn't wasn't going to work out and so that's kind of why i got out in 2011 and, and uh that's cool. went on and and really the adipose was a big factor in that too is i i saw the opportunity here and i, I love montana and stuff so i I've decided to give up one career for hopefully another. For another. It seemed to work out. That's awesome. And what was the, I think you mentioned the wild child. I think of myself, I've done some, when I was a kid, you know, the crazy stuff. I think we, we used to play like BB gun wars when we were little kids. But I mean, what was the, what was the craziest thing from your childhood that, you know, that you did that kind of. You oh, man. It was, <laughs> it was just a, definitely BB gun wars. Definitely building forts and stuff. I grew up in, uh, where I grew up in West Michigan, I, I, I pretty much grew up on a farm. So my, uh, my uncle's farm was right, literally right across the street from me, from my parents' house and stuff. And then our house was surrounded by cornfields or soybean fields and alfalfa fields and stuff. And so, and then from there we had woods all over the place and I had a four wheeler and a dirt bike growing up too. Um, and so uh, that was really a lot of it was like we'd build a big jump and then everyone kind of be standing around and they're like, who's going to hit it first. And That's it. Here I like, yeah, I'll go. You were the one and from there. And we had uh, like the, a pond across the street. And so they're like, well, we don't know if the ice is thick enough, Justin, go check it. <laughs> so it was just like always being, being that guy that just would, would do that. There's the electric fence on, I don't know. Let's see. And then, yeah from there and then in high school and stuff i i definitely was doing a lot of drinking and doing a lot of that stuff and uh yeah. uh just kind of 
went from there. But yeah, definitely always, always like fireworks and, and shooting guns and, and doing everything. So my, my parents could, could, uh, explain for hours <laughs> about how they never slept. So you, so you managed to, uh, you managed to make it through, right. Without, without dying, uh, you made it through, you know, you were the, you were that, that kid, you know, the crazy kid. I mean, what do you attribute that to? Like, is the, was the army the thing that kind of kept, got you straightened as far as like, you know, kept you safe, I guess. Well, safe is a uh, relative, right? Yeah. Ah, uh, man, my, I grew up in a pretty strict household in the sense, uh, that one, my parents were, they're always loving and caring and they, and they kept a close eye on me. And a part of that I think is just my personality. I rebelled again. And then also within that household, we were pretty religious. And, um, so I just had a really good foundation. And so Hmm. part of me just always was rebelling and always was, was fighting against the grain and, and going out and stuff. And then the, the military definitely let me vent a lot of that out. And so, cause in the end, like where I'm at now, I, I never have to like work, think about like what would have been like too, or I wonder what this was like, or wonder what, like, and so, cause I just did it all. Mm. And so I, I kind of just got it all out of my system. And then, um, once I, once I quit drinking, I've been sober for eight years now. Oh, cool. I quit drinking. Um, when I was 25 and, uh, that was a big part of it. And then also I had a daughter, um, adopted a daughter when I was uh, in 2015. And so, um, being a dad just kind of really grounded me. And then yeah, just the responsibility here at work and stuff. So it was, it was definitely a combination of of a ton of things, but, uh, one is I, I probably did, enough crazy stuff for a lifetime's worth by the time I was 25. And then from there, the, the great foundation, my parents gave me, and then, uh, just being a dad, like, well, as soon as I became a dad, started raising my daughter, it was like, this is it. This is, this is, I was pretty, I was pretty selfish person with my time. And and as soon as I started doing that, I was, I was like, this is, that's cool. This is the coolest thing I've that's cool yeah i think i think that's the one of the beauty the the great things about kids is that they yeah i mean it changes your focus obviously probably yeah say and maybe saves a lot of lives because it makes you realize yeah you can't keep going doing what you're doing or you're going to kill yourself and you want to be around for your kids as much as possible to see them yeah yeah definitely and i and i've seen it too with a with a couple of my friends that we were on the same and stuff and then the ones that didn't have kids continued down that path in a sense and then, yeah. and then some that did have kids kind of continued down that yeah. path and then they straightened out um, but then there's other ones as soon as their their kid was born it's like the the, the switch went on and yeah. it was it was different yeah i know and it, I, I don't want to go down too deep down this hole of you know death and stuff but we had a um a friend whose kid, I mean, I, he, I guess he was like 17. I mean, he, he just died, um, you know, recently. And, uh, it was, we think it was partly, um, pill related. Like they, I think he took, uh, some Viking or something off the, off the street that had some, you know what I mean? Some, uh, whatever the stuff they put on it, but just didn't mm-hmm. wake, didn't wake up, man. You know I mean? A 17 year old kid who like a, a normal kid, pretty normal kid. Right. And, uh, 
So it's those things that get me thinking about my kids. Like, oh man, it's like not only do you have to get them, keep them alive when they're you know young, but there's <laughs> yeah, a lot. And I remember it as well, right? I remember the bad kids. I remember that time where I I got around the the few of my friends in that high school period where it was like, man, these are not the right kids, and I was getting into trouble. And uh, and it's so yeah, it's it's the who you're around is a big part of it, but um. Yeah, definitely that. But like I, was, I think too, like just even this quickly talking to you about it, like I think like you can tell that you care about your kids and their future and that's something you think about. And so uh, what I've really noticed is like some of the friends and some of the people that I knew in high school that didn't, that that haven't been able to straighten their lives out and just keep struggling and struggling and struggling it's like they just didn't have that foundation with their their that love and care from their parents from the get-go and so they've kind of always been fighting on their own and don't have that mentorship that it is that because when you're young like you don't want to listen to that stuff that your parents are telling you but it's still it's still there planting those seeds in there yeah that's right that's a that's a big part of it I remember when I was getting in trouble, you know, and my dad who, you know, he was, you know, he was kind of strict, but not, you know, but he came up to, he didn't say much, but he just said, he didn't even tell me to stop, but he just said, you need to think about who you're hanging out with. And mm-hmm. and, and that's all he said. And it took me a little while, but like a year later or whatever it was, I, I realized, oh God, he was, yeah, he was exactly right. I was with the wrong kid. So, so man, Hey, this is, <laughs> this has been, I love hearing the background. I mean, obviously this is setting the stage for, you're involved with, you know, Adipose now, and, and I want to dig into that. Um, so I love getting a little background on your story there. Um, you know, maybe we could start off with, you know, talking about Adipose. Um, you know, obviously you, you mentioned Tracy and, um, and I mentioned, uh, I, I've had a couple people in the Facebook group note Tracy's name as well. Um, maybe talk about that. Can you bring us back to how the boat, uh, maybe a little bit of how the company got started? Yeah. So, Tracy Allen uh, was, again, he's one of the founders of the company. He's got a pretty unique story himself. Uh, he originally was from uh, North Carolina, and he moved out here, it's got to be out, out west, like four, almost 40 years ago now, um, or over 40 years ago. And he kind of landed in the, in the Belgrade area. And he had a mechanical engineer background and he was a machinist, uh, North Carolina and, uh, was, went to college for, for mechanical engineering and stuff. And he, as soon as he came out here and was fishing and start, he started guiding almost right away. And, uh, he was, he's just a tinker and he, he very much like there's, it's, it's his way or the highway and, and there, he can tell you what's wrong with everything. And, uh, he, uh, so he would get a boat and he wouldn't like the design very much. And so he would cut things and change things and just, uh, manipulate them a little bit to, for his style and what he thought would make it real better and stuff. And so he did that for a number of years and, then he, at one point, uh, started to make some aluminum boats, and those were called. I want to say they're called metalheads. Hmm. Um, oh, he made so a, an actual company. There was an actual company he created. Yeah, he was involved in an actual company called Metalhead Drifters, and we have one sitting on the lot here. Um, and they, I, man, I want to say they were 
partly made in in Oregon Pacific Northwest uh-huh. area, and that was that those were like his first iterations of a skiff design. Um, it, as as you probably know, and, and a lot of people don't know, like pretty much all that was around was dories, right? And yeah. some dories were were just the, your traditional dory, traditional drift boat, big flared sides, big rocker, front to back and stuff, pointy bow, pretty narrow transom. Um, and so he was doing that and then got out involved in that company, uh, stopped being involved in that company. And then while he was in Belgrade, he came up with another design and he started another company called High Country Drifters. Um, there's actually a new company in North Carolina, funny enough, that's called High Country Drifters now. Wow. Um, and they make a, a kind of a skiff hybrid traditional boat um, with some similar designs to our current boat. Tracy has nothing to do with that, but they, they started kind of a handful of years ago. But yeah, we, uh, so High Country Drifters, Tracy built his own molds and plugs from that. And so to a lot of people that maybe won't doesn't sound like that big of a deal, but that's where all the, the money is and, and the whole company lies in like what your molds and plugs are. Cause that's where it's, it's just a reversal of what your boat's going to be. So whatever your plug looks like is what your mold's going to look like. And whatever your mold looks like is exactly what your, your, your boat's going to look like. And what is the plug? What is the plug? So the plug is what is how you make your first mold. It's very, it's so backwards how you do this process. Um, but essentially what you very first do is you make something that is going to look like your final part and it's pretty temporary. So whether it's a seat box or a tackle storage lid or, or your, or something bigger, like your boat hole, you're, you make what your hole is going to look like out of fiberglass. Yep. Out of, out of fiberglass. Well, no, it's just, no, not actually. No, you, you make it out of like whatever you can, whatever you can find that's workable that, cause this is the big thing. You're always going to, you're, this is how you create your actual shape. So most of the time you make it out of like MDF. And so it's just like, like particle board with that. You stick a bunch of Bondo on and you smooth it out and then you spray it with like a sandable primer. Um, and so that's where, like, when you look at a plug, it would be what would look exactly like a, an upside down boat. Um, and so you make this temporary plug, you get it as close as you can to your final shape and final smoothness and stuff. Because when we pop a boat, uh, like once we're all done making plugs and molds and everything, and we pop a boat out of the mold, we don't do anything to it. The reason why it gets that glossy, shiny finish is because that's what your mold looks like. And the only reason your mold looks like that is because that's what your plug looked like. And how is a, a mold different than a plug? So your mold is re- is your re- reversal of your plug, right? So you your plug looks like a flipped over boat. Your mold looks like an empty bathtub that is the shape of your boat gotcha. and it's shiny and glossy on the inside. And, and again, that's what you lay. So 
so you make your temporary plug, then you pull hopefully a good mold off of it. And when I say pull, so that's where you go from like MDF to in that those temporary materials to your mold, which is going to where you're going to build all your parts out of. That needs to be extremely sound and and uh, strong and no wavies in it, nothing that's going to cause any issues. So that is usually made out of uh, vinyl ester resin. Uh, to, so one tooling gel, which is a very, it's like gel coat, but a, a lot harder. And then uh, vinyl ester resin and GP resin. And then you build like a bunch of structure around the outside, like a, a, some sort of like rib system mm-hmm. to, to stiffen it up. <clears throat> um, and you pop that off your plug. And so that is working. Normally, because the the plug was temporary to begin with, you can get lucky and you can pull another mold off of your plug or, or another couple molds your first plug. But normally, your fir- your very first plug is kind of going to be junk, and so you then out of your molds you pull a final plug out of. That's like your master key. Once you have that final plug, you can make as many molds, which then can make as many boats as you would ever want to make or whatever part it may be, whether it's a car hood or a seat box or a casting brace or you you name it. And this is the fiberglass. This is obviously the fiberglass. This would be different than if you're making a, uh, a wood boat or aluminum boat or, you know, whatever, but it's. You know, it's interesting because it sounds like there's, you know, I, I don't know, obviously, uh, you know, much about it, but it sounds like it's an extra step there that um, that's hard to understand why, you know, why you wouldn't just start with the mold. But I guess I guess that's uh, that's mainly. And, and why is that? I guess why? Why couldn't you? I'm, I'm getting, you know, again, I don't want to stick on this too long, but just clarifying the plug and mold. Um, you know, you have one that's upside down, one that's right side up. What, what is the big why couldn't you just start with a. Um, the 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 mold is it just because one's because you can't because you can't just shape you that final mold like we talked about is that hard vinyl ester tooling gel and stuff you can't shape that once that's made it's 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 made it solid you can shape your plug oh that's that's what it is yeah so you have to be able to shape and when i like it's it sounds complicated and it is it and it sa- it almost sounds easy but it's definitely not it's very very it, it's very meticulous like you're sitting there at first and you're you're putting on layers of 30 second inch thick bondo and sanding it and building it up and shaping and doing and so every little curve and every little thing and if it once it's done like if you look down the side and you made a couple waves in it then the refraction is going to be all look weird and stuff and so it's just it's very very difficult and so that's why when i set when i kind of mentioned that tracy made his own plug and mold that it was pretty pretty big thing for him to do on his own and to do it in just in like a garage in the in outside of belgrade um area and so that company uh that he started there high country drifters he ended up building 16 fiberglass boats he had a couple people that helped him here and there just random buddies but for the most part, he built them all on his own. And 
this was back before like now we have what we call chopper guns and we can get into that later um but like he was hand batching everything so he's using one gallon buckets and he's pouring resin in he's pouring catalysts in mixing it together dumping it on the fiberglass squeegeeing it out and stuff so it was very very labor intensive um for what it was and at the same time he was guiding full-time um yeah yeah then during the winters his whole thing is steelhead swinging for steelhead over on the clear water yep. and so that, that's kind of what his uh his life revolved around he did that again from that was like late 80s early 90s and that was like a very very that's like generation one of the adipose flow right now like very very similar design and one of the first skiffs on the market um in a lot of ways so that was the high country drifters those were kind of more skiffs so you guys and t- and today do you are you still i mean the boats most of the ones you see are look more like a skiff than a, a like a, a dory is that still the case yeah yep so we've we've always just kind of grown uh taken that skiff design because we have uh, uh, some opinions about why skiffs are better for what we do for what most trout fishermen do uh we think that a skiff design is going to be better especially out in these rocky mountain states um and so at that same time like there was uh, around that time that's when like coffler skiffs were coming out that's when the south fork skiff came out and the high country skiff and so it was that was like really when you started to late 80s early 90s uh, that's when you started to see these skiffs hit the market so the high country drifters that was in the late 80s they he had that company going yeah i want to say late 80s early i don't know exactly what year but yeah definitely in there is when cuz he also before it, in between the the metal boats and during the the fiberglass book he before he made his first plugs he made a handful or at least two wood boats also and so those wood boats is really where he because wood is a lot easier to manipulate and just kind of like you're saying like why when you're asking like well why don't you guys just go with this like that's what with wood you can like you just say okay this is my design you start manipulating the wood and then once you're done that's your final thing like you don't have to then make something off of that so basically uh tracy had i mean yeah i mean obviously i think you said was it 2010 adipose boat the actual company started was that was that correct yeah november 9th of 2009 uh was when mike and tracy walked into what now is our office space and 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 area and that's when they the 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 legwork kind of started a little bit before that but then really we didn't start building until 2010 okay so 2010 so basically but yeah but there's you know but there's a huge history of of uh, mike and, and tracy getting building up to that you know almost probably yeah 20 30 years of before adipose's launch so that makes sense and then and then on the um on the skiff, so that design of the skiff, um, I mean, if you just take it, we know where the design of the drift boat, the dory came from. I mean, it came from, uh, you know, I've got a whole episode on the history of drift boats with Roger Fletcher, and he talked about how that started back on the Mackenzie and Rogue, you know, with the two different styles of drift boats. But but the skiff is quite a bit different. Where does that design, you know, can you attribute that to some person or some series of boats? 
I don't know if you can really attribute to one person. Um, I think that there's someone out there that might try to claim it, but I think it more than anything, it was born out of necessity because in, it was born out of necessity by a few different people at the same time. Um, there's cause out when I say like Rocky mountain States, like I'm, I'm talking Wyoming, Idaho, Montana, Utah, like, so, like kind of this vein that goes through the country uh, uh, along the front in a way and in the middle of the Rocky Mountain where we have rivers that are more mellow than a lot of the stuff on the Pacific Northwest, maybe where it just drops like crazy amounts of elevation uh, fast yeah. or same thing where uh, maybe like in versus Colorado where it drops crazy amount of elevation super fast. And so you have a lot of rapids in like big, when I, I'm saying like big rapids. Yeah. And so we don't have as big of rapids. Like if you float somewhere here and you touch legit three class three rapids and you're fishing for trout, like yeah. that's, that's pretty big deal. Like here, just, you don't do that um, for in that, but it's windy all the time (laughs) so you're so it's just when when those when those guys came out here the guides that that came from whether that they came from like tracy he came from north carolina and and the mckenzie era over there and then you have the guys in the pacific northwest that are doing the steelhead and 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 those those fisheries and stuff and and those uh, but other boats you talked about and then they come out here and the design worked but you just get blown around like a leaf on the water and so that's where the skiff was kind of born it's like they need something that can handle the wind but also handle the really shallow uh rivers that we have and the gotcha. big big ebbs and flows from runoff to to late season in these free stones and then um from there fishing two anglers that are actually fishing, not just like sitting, sitting, going from spot to spot and, and stuff. And so it was just like a combination of things. And, um, but yeah, this like the South works gift with Paul Brune and, and those guys that did that. And, and then Tracy with the, um, with the high country drifter and stuff like it definitely, I've heard someone reference it in the past one time when I was in a fly tying class, he, he, I, uh, he was talking about how he came up with this certain way to tie an Alcare caddis. And, and he was the first person, he was pretty, pretty famous making videos going all along the world, teaching classes and stuff. And he was the first person that he saw or that knew that he knew of that did this technique. But then he went to the East coast and he was at another seminar and he saw someone else do the same thing. And so he said in what he was talking about, he's like, yeah, you may be the first person that you know of that done it and you can try to claim it. But like, there's multiple people at at one time that are going down the same p- parallel paths and it, it may be a few weeks or, or months different. And in that time before media and, and the way the internet is now, it's like you, you would never know. That's the interesting thing I'm you know, trying to get to is on that as far as the skiff. It sounds like if you go pre-80s or whatever, um, you know, I mean, we're, how far would you have to go back to where you wouldn't see a river skiff on, on – it sounds like they're mostly focused on on kind of uh, the, the area there in the Rockies or 
you know, I guess out towards the Michigan and, and the Great Lakes as well. But, you know, could you go back, say, to 1970 and not see a single uh, skiff design like you guys build? Yeah, I would say so, unless you, like, count, like, an Asabo boat as a skiff. <laughs> I don't Asa- know if you know what that is. No. You don't know what those Yeah, so they're, like, a really long canoe that you pull with super low sides. What's it called? It's called a Asabo uh, skiff? So, I, it, yeah, A-U and then space and then S-A-B-L, I believe, Asabo. And so there's an Asabo River in Michigan. And that was like, and so it's a, it's, it's like a Ginu. Do you know what a Ginu is? No, I don't. Okay. Well, yeah. So it's, they're very interesting. Once you put was like, I hope some people pull them up and look at them. Like in Michigan guys still outfit and guide from them. They are, they are super unique and they're, oh, the yeah. rivers there are so shallow gotcha. that they that you don't really you can paddle them a little bit but they they almost like pull them like a flat skiff i'll put a link in the show notes to one i'm looking at it now it looks yeah i mean it it basically looks like a mix between a canoe and a drift boat kind of yeah and And so though like asabo boats have been i don't even know when the first one of those is made but that that probably predates 1970 i got you so it's just kind of like iterations where you just constantly but i i yeah to to your those there's no way those would work out here no in, they would tip over even in like a class one rapid yeah or it just anything like those they're just specifically like the estable river is a very very yeah, you don't see narrow mellow mellow river there that makes sense stuff. that makes sense that's cool well there's another there's another episode as i go down on this drift boat season i think that's going to be the problem like a lot of these things i'm going to run out of uh time to, to cover all the time because that would be interesting right northern michigan fly fishing uh ensemble. oh it's a huge it's a huge deal there too those guys they're definitely going to be a lot of of uh some a lot of uh resources and people to talk to there and stuff that's cool that's cool well let's bring it back to you know i wanted to touch on fiberglass as well because you know i've had a few guests already on um i've had koffler on we've talked about the aluminum boats and the connection there and but, you know, and there's some big players in the, the, the drift boat, you know, Clacka Craft, um, Hyde. There's a whole bunch of big fiberglass boats. What are the advantages of, and I'm not sure, it sounds like you've been in a few boats, but if you think about the fiberglass boat, what, what's the advantages of a fiberglass, say, over a aluminum or wood or maybe even like a, 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 a plastic, you know, like a boulder boat sort of thing? First, I'll talk about the other the the other types of materials. Yeah. So with aluminum, right? The when I'm going through my elevator speech and talking through someone, and they they ask me about aluminum, my opinion about aluminum is it's hot when it's hot out, it's cold when it's cold out, yeah. and it's loud all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so That's true. It's like it, they're don't they're extremely durable. They're it, but after that, like it, they're harder in some ways to like manipulate certain things unless, cause you can't, again, there's no mold for anything yeah. versus fiberglass. So you have to like individually piece together every part and, and weld it and bend it and, mm-hmm. and, and, and put it in a break and do all this. And so it gets pretty difficult to make something pretty intricate in aluminum boats and stuff. And, uh, and they have their place. Like I, I know for sure, like out in the, um, in the Pacific Northwest where you are banging off rocks all day long and stuff like you, you need something that's going to be 
more durable than than some fiberglass boats. Yeah. Uh, and then so quickly to move from there to to wood. Wood is the the maintenance is just crazy. Like yeah. you're every winter you're bringing that thing inside, you're sanding it down, you're varnishing it, you're doing this, you're doing that, and, and so it's like it's the upkeep. They're beautiful, they're amazing and stuff. So upkeep, not not really ideal. Um, and then you go into plastic. Plastic has some of the limitations this, as the same. Um, that aluminum is going to have with with different molding and different the things where you're going to have to piece it all together. Yes, you can you can build a mold that to inject this or inject that, but building a a mold for plastic injection is very expensive, hmm. and so you're kind of stuck with like okay, more simpler designs and stuff. And it's also very expensive. Like Boulder Boatworks makes a beautiful boat, and, and they do the they kind of mix the old with the yep. new and the fact that they do the wood with the, with the plastic and stuff. So they have a really unique feel and stuff to them. And then they also have like their convertible river taxi or yeah. CRT, which has the aluminum framing inside of it and stuff. And so that's, but again, like cost wise, it's just very, it's very, very, very expensive. Gotcha. So with, with fiberglass, once you have your molds, it's pretty easy to work with. Like you can make it, you can, you can mold it, you can lay it pretty fast. You can get really good consistency. Um, the material's not that expensive. The most expensive thing by far in our whole process is our labor. Um, the, our boats are very, very labor intensive, but the actual material itself is not that expensive. And then once the boat's made, the upkeep is, is pretty simple. Like it's really like, I can tell boats and I see a lot of used boats. I see we do a lot of repairs. I can tell immediately if a boat was covered or not. I can tell immediately yeah. if a boat was washed regularly or not. So the fiberglass boat, that's one of the things you definitely, it's similar to, I've had some oars. I never had a fiberglass boat, but I've had oars that were fiberglass that I left outdoors and, and like the fiberglass, eventually you wouldn't want to touch it with your arm. Otherwise you get fiberglass in your arm because I guess the protective coating wore off. Is, is the drift boat different than that? Like what would happen if you left yeah. it outside for a couple of years? Yeah, I def it, it's definitely a lot different than that. Cause <clears throat> you're probably talking about some cataract oars. Um, exactly. I actually I had this exact conversation with a guy yesterday. Oh, really? Called me and asked me why when he gets near his boat, he gets itchy. And I said, <laughs> it's not your boat, it's your oars. Um, because the, so with the, with the boat, um, it's not, you can leave them out. Don't get me wrong. You can leave them outside for decades. And, and as long as the water's draining out of it, you're going to pretty much be all right. Yeah. The, the biggest thing that i see is you're going to get sun just like a car right like you can park a car outside or you can park it in the garage but if you leave a car outside after 10 years it's going to be sun fade there's going to be haze there's going to be a bunch of stuff that are starting to get wear and tear on it will it be a little weaker will, will the actual boat be like if you hit a rock would it be a, a weaker not not that i mean i think it makes sense to keep your boats inside when you can obviously but i'm just getting back to that point of you know, I think an aluminum boat, not that one, any one is better than the other, but aluminum, you could just leave outside for like 30 years and it wouldn't matter because it's just. I don't think the, again, as long as water's draining out of it and it's not like just sitting there filling up like a bathtub, it, I don't, the glass wouldn't get weaker. Yeah. Um, just the, not, nothing that's noticeable. Gotcha. Um, for like a, uh, 
30 year span yeah, and something. That, and, that, and that's pushing it a little bit. But, you know, I mean, I just want to get to the point, you know, on the fiberglass, if somebody comes in and they're thinking, okay, you know, I want to buy a boat. And again, not that anyone's better. They all have great features. But, you know, what is the pitch on the fiberglass boat? If you say like the top five benefits of the fiberglass, um, you, you know, your guys's boat. And you can even throw that, the fact that it's a skiff. I think Boulder, we talked about their skiff, low sides, helps with the wind, um, you know, and all the features. So that's great. But if you talk about just fiberglass, what what are the, have you talked about those benefits, the cost, you have a lower cost, um, anything yeah, else? Yeah, so you're, you're still, you're, you're landing in the middle of the road of costs where it's expensive, but it's not like crazy. It's, it's the great thing is about it is it's e- not easy, but you can repair it fairly easy. So like no matter what, yeah. as long as, again, as long as water's draining out of it and you don't let it get to the point where everything's delaminating, like we refinish bottoms of boats all the time oh, cool. and we repaint interiors and stuff like <clears throat> we've taken 30 year old fiberglass boats, legitimately 30 year old fiberglass boats and done a full refurbish on them and brought them back to where they look brand new and they're as sound or more sound than they were brand new and stuff. So as long as you take care of it, it's always going to be there. Um, it's easy to, it's easier to make molds and in, in more intricate parts and stuff because you can, you can bend and cause when all of our fiberglass is raw, it literally just feels like a, some of it just feels like a t-shirt or huh. a, like a rug that you would lay on the floor. And oh, so wow. you just, you can manipulate it however you want when it's in that raw form. And then once the chemical reaction happens between the, the resins and the, and the catalyst, then it becomes hard. So we can make really intricate rod trays and tackle storage lids and stuff and, and casting braces. And, and we can change designs uh, fairly frequently and, and easier. So it's just, there's a ton of benefits and a lot of it is, so 75% of our clients are, are guides and those guides, they're, they're looking at this, like I need this to last me in between two and, and five years. Like that doesn't seem like a very much uh, long amount of time, but like me as a dude that works in an office all day, if I go and float 50 times a year, I'm doing awesome. Um, yeah. for a guide around here, Montana, Wyoming, Idaho and stuff like they're doing 150 to 200 days a year. If you're a full-time like <clears throat> guy, like guide that's doing so that in one, it's going to take me four to depend. And that, that's, I'll, I'll fish a lot, like a random person. If they float 20 times a year, they're doing good. So it, it could take them 10 years to put in what they might what a guide might do in one season. And so gotcha. guides are looking to, to get their investment to, to make money off of it, turn around, flip it, not be too much into repairing it and so on and so forth. And so that's kind of why, um, fiberglass has been the most popular with the clack hides, so the lack of maintenance needed, the cheaper cost, and then the, the overall durability and then also the uh the fact that yeah i mean you're going down a a trout stream you don't want to be banging and making a lot of noise and and these things kind of and also they bend right a little bit flex over rocks so they can slide through like exactly. sh- shallower water that's the you know the clack i guess that's what they talk a lot about the fact that it can kind of you know and it does the floor bends as you're yep. as you're going down i was just gonna say yeah so we try to ride this fine line of like of design 
to where it's going to flex enough, but not be too flexible. Because it, if your boat's flexing a lot, then you're losing power when you're rowing, right? Mm. So you want your boat to be stiff enough where it's it's maintaining power. And then also fiberglass doesn't there's it likes to flex, but it doesn't like to flex where there's hard points where parts tie into the, the floors or the sides of different things like that. And so that's where uh, we try to like we use core materials to stiffen up our bottom. So when you're walking around in them, it doesn't feel like a waterbed or a trampoline and stuff because it, so it still will slide over rocks, but also you're going to get a lot more life out of it because it's it's stiff enough in the in the bottom and your hard points, tie-in points aren't breaking. Gotcha. Okay, cool. Well, let's jump. Before we get out of here, I want to touch on uh, accessories and maybe a little on the fishing. Um, what are the as far as accessories? What are some of the popular? You know, like when you get one of your skiffs, what what does that? You know, what are the opt? What do people tip, typically love to add to that? Are there? I mean, you mentioned the rod holders. Are there other things? If you say a kind of a, a list of those. Yeah. So with our boats, we have a pretty unique design where we have rod trays. So our our, instead of sticking them, our rods in a tube that bend down the side of the boat, there's a flat tray with a real seat that where the, the rods lay on their sides and, and uh, you just pick one up, set one down. Very easy to change, yep. switch from one rod to another. And so we get a lot of guys that will put rod tray foam in there. It's just like we call it, it's like a high density foam uh, that it helps protect rods and stuff. And then so, so people can transport with rods in there. Oh, gotcha. um, we do rubber rubber mats on the floors where the anglers stand because you just again with guides, clients, whoever you're going to get people that show up with cleats. At least oh, yeah. you could let them in the boat and say, "Don't move off that mat," <laughs> and <laughs> you're not going to destroy everything. Um, we and then motor mounts and covers, and we one thing that's kind of unique to us. Uh, is our boats are very versatile and changeable with like the, our casting brace legs and tops removed. So you can make it a true sit down boat. Like we're talking about with keeping quiet. You also want to keep a low profile because out here, like we're stones throw away from the Missouri river, just amazing blue river trout stream for, for dry fly fishing. And if you try to stand up and cast at those fish in late July, like not going to happen unless you can make an accurate 60 foot, 60 foot reach cast. Yep. Like if you want to get people that like your normal angler on it, 30 foot reach cast and, and sneaking up on them and stuff. And so that's a big, big thing with us. And then from there, since we have these removable parts and pieces, we've created casting platforms, which are really cool uh, platforms that go in the front and the back of the boat that, elevate from where the angler standing on the floor of the boat to now standing about two feet taller to up on top of the boat which kind of contradicts what i just said about keeping a lower profile but the reason why we made those is we call them the casting platform but i call it the carp deck because hmm. i'm like huge into carp fishing so is the owner mike ward and founder tracy and um and and uh so we use it for sight fishing where you you can sneak across these to carp flats and, and go out there a lot of times too. Like we'll use them out on, on still water on lakes early in the morning where you get gulpers out. The, yep. the fish are just chasing, chasing around and, uh, eating off the surface. And so you can see them from a long ways out and put a cast out in front of them and stuff. So that's a really cool feature. We do, uh, net holders, spare oar holders. We, 
I had a guy just, he's coming to pick up his boat on Thursday. He wanted like a bimini top. And so what we, what I ended up doing was I, I found a beach umbrella that you can twist in the middle, like lean back and forth. And so we made it where you take out a rear casting brace leg, you stick in that, uh, the base of the beach umbrella, which has a button, a push button, like our garble casting brace legs and, uh, goes from there. And, and then he has it where now, cause he fishes up on Hebgen Lake a bunch and for, for gulpers there. And, and some days just getting beat down by the sun. And so just hiding out from that. And yep. So it's just really like people come all the time and say, can you do? And, and immediately I say, we can do anything. It's yep. just, what is your, what's gotcha. your budget? And then, uh, so yeah. Cool. Cool. And what about, um, as far as buying a boat, I mean, if somebody, obviously you guys, you somebody can buy a boat from you. I'm not sure. Uh, what if somebody was in the market looking around and as far as used boats, do you have any, any tips on, you know, if somebody wanted, if didn't have quite the money to get a brand new, where, where they might start? Yeah. So we, we sell used boats ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're all listed on our website. Um, it, it, and then, yeah, so there's a, that's really the, the best, if you're looking for one of our boats, that's going to be the best spot to look is, is either like the Craigslist around Helena area or yeah. around Montana or in, um, on our website. Cause that's where we list them. And be, really you don't see very many of our boats just being sold outright. Like most of the used boats that you see from Adipose that are in Adipose, they're being sold by us because a guy traded in and got a new one. Like we talked about oh, with that two to five yeah. span thing. And there's very few people that actually get one, have it for a number of years and then just sell it. Oh, like most people, they just love the boat that much that they hold on to it. So we kind of control the used market in gotcha. that sense. Um, but yeah. if you're wherever you're at, just, just kind of looking uh, on, on Craigslist and stuff and keep perusing. Um, I know east of the Mississippi, it gets really, really hard to find drift boats because really there's only stealth craft in yeah, Michigan that makes, makes, makes boats and then over there, but, or sorry, and then there is that high country boats, but oh, yeah. there's, it's just automatically I see boats that get east of the Mississippi, their value goes up by a thousand or two thousand dollars because it's so much more difficult to, uh, to get a boat there. Um, but if I was you, like, do you want me to give pointers on like, if someone was to like, if they're going to look at a used boat to look at, yeah, look that'd be great. For? That'd be great. Yeah. If somebody yeah. comes up, let, let's say somebody, let's say they're just out there. They, they see a ad on, or they see something in whatever, right. The paper, or the Facebook. And it's like, Oh, this looks like a, a nice boat. Let's go meet and check it out. So they go to the boat and they, they're in front of it. They could touch it. Well, yeah. What do they look like? What do they need to know about a fiberglass boat to know if it's good? Uh, so a couple things. One is like we kind of discussed earlier is they're pretty easy to repair and, and, and work on. And so don't get like too caught up on certain things with the bottom being scratched up or whatever, because for six to $800, you can get the bottom completely refinished depending on where you go. But really what I would look for is look where I call them the tie in points. And I kind of mentioned this earlier, mm-hmm with our design, but anywhere, whether it be a casting brace, whether it be a seat box, whether it be a bench, whether it be a rod holder, anywhere where that part meets the whole of the boat, 
take a good look at those tie-in points because that's where, again, like as the boat's flexing, normally those tie-in points are going to be going opposite direction of what the regular flex would be. And so that's where you'll get what we call stress cracking. Um, and it will look like a spider crack, uh, spider cracking like in a window or something like that. But it, it those points, if it's bad enough, though that means that those parts are about to fall out like they literally like i've had it where guys brought casting brace from a certain manufacturer here and you pull on the front casting brace and the whole front cap just comes off the boat um and so things like that where if you're just look like when you first go to look at it people just if especially if it's your first boat a boat's a boat right go look they don't know what anything is Look at those points. Make sure that nothing's like drastic there. Um, you can always shoot me some photos. I don't care if it's another manufacturer's boat, whatever. Mm-hmm. Like we do a lot of repairs and stuff. So shoot me some photos and say, what do you think about this? And then I'll say, yeah, nothing to really worry about, whatever. Um, it, or like that's a big deal and stuff. And then do crawl under the boat and look and make sure that there's no what we call delamination. So most of your b- – hand laid fiberglass boats, hide, clack, row, us. Uh you're you're gonna use multiple layers to to create your actual hull. And if the boats had too much flex or too much abuse, you can get delamination where those layers are actually separating and then there'll be spots where water can seep in between those layers and then it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse and so really look out for that Uh, and most of the time that's going to be maybe dead center in the middle of the floor or along the chines and the chines is where the bottom comes up and creates the side Mm -hmm. um, front to back so really watch out for that and then from there just like making sure seats are good and, and stuff and and no matter what unless you bought it from someone like like us that is gone through the boat and and made it whatever pre-owned certified whatever you want to call it Mm -hmm. um go get the axle checked immediately oh yeah um because that's a huge thing like i every season i i end up send selling multiple people brand new axles for for reasons that could have been easily prevented with just checking and replacing bearings. Um, spend the 120 bucks to get your bearings repacked and replaced and stuff. It's, yeah. it's well worth the investment because on your way to your, your once a year or twice a year or yep. three times a year fishing trip and, right. and being stuck in a Walmart a park, parking lot and podunk nowhere is, is going to be. That's a great tip. And so that, yeah, that's a big one. And, and that's the trade. And what do you guys use? Um, yeah, who who's the company that makes your trailers, or what do you guys have out there? So our trailers are made by Black Dog Trailers out of Bancroft, Idaho. Um, it's a design that's proprietary to us. Uh, we Tracy and Mike designed it together, uh, and then they so he he welds them up and and brings them to the gal, galvanizing plant and then we just get stacks of frames essentially and then from there we put the axles and the tires and the bunks and the rollers and all those things and we assemble and build all that stuff ourselves here gotcha okay cool 
Cool. Well, I guess, uh, yeah, maybe the fishing piece, we're probably going to dig into that on a, uh, well, <laughs> we've talked a lot about fishing, so I wanted to touch on the adipose. I think that was interesting. Um, anything else before we get out of here? Anything, you know, for adipose the next uh, six months or so you want to give a, a heads up on? Uh, no, not not too much with design stuff right now. We're constantly... We get, I get a lot of people like, well, what's the difference between a 2020 and 2019? Or we're just constantly always improving. One thing is that I think we're really, really good at is we're always listening to our customers, always listening to the, that guide feedback of those of those customers or ours that are spending those 150 to 200 days on the water every year and saying, hey, man, like you guys need to do something about this and actually taking it to heart and doing that. So that, there's always little nuances between the years that we've changed to make them better and better. We don't just sit back on on our laurels and our name and be like, oh, we're adipose. Like we're, we're yeah. established now. We're always hungry. We always want to be leading the pack in innovation and stuff. And so, uh, yeah, just kind of that that stuff is is what we're working on right now. Nothing, nothing too big there. Um, Cool. Yeah, and then I think the only other real thing with with Adipose, we we didn't touch on too much, but just with Mike Ward, the the owner, how he found Tracy and stuff. But yeah, Mike was also a guy found one of Tracy's high country boats, and that's really how Adipose was born. Was oh, gotcha. from that, yeah, action stuff. But yeah, um, cool. Yeah, oh, we're yeah. we're always always innovating and, and trying to stay out of the curve and like i said listen to our customers and, and awesome. fix the issues that they see that's awesome cool man all right justin well uh adipost uh, boatworks.com is the best place to, to find you guys yeah that's our website and then adiposeboatworks at gmail.com is our is our email and um pretty small operation in the sense that uh just we have 14 employees and yeah. Me included in our office manager so if you send an email to that i'll i'll be sure to see it and uh, yeah, yeah. I, I think 14 employees i i was just interviewing uh ken morish uh with flywater travel i think earlier uh this week and yeah i mean i think they have 14 employees right same thing and they're uh, they're one of the big travel companies around um so it seems like you know fly fishing right we, we talk about this it's a small space and 14 employees is probably i don't know if it's the average but that's you're probably in the medium size would you say company wise like uh, numbers like kind of more medium or small to medium? yeah yeah. yeah definitely depends on what you're I, I think with the size of like drift boat companies and stuff like when you compare us to whether it be the people that are within our realm i would say row yeah boulder stealth craft like maybe coffler and, and and stuff that that's probably average and then hide and clacker craft they're in a whole nother level right us. and uh and so they're uh, i who knows how many employees they have yeah. but they yeah they're definitely cranking out. We're we're building about eighty but eighty to eighty five boats a year right now, and they're probably doing closer to two hundred. Two hundred, which still, I mean, I think that's what Boulder said too, and I, it still sounds like eighty five boats is is you know, I mean, that's not too far behind you know two hundred. So, uh, but I do have uh, you know, um, Clack uh, and hopefully Hyde will get both of those uh, get them on as well before we wrap up up with this drift boat season. Um, but yeah. Um, Cool, man. Well, hey, I appreciate your time and uh, sharing some uh, little insight into the history of, of Adipose and, you know, some tips. I think we, we touched on a little, a little bit of everything. So, uh, yeah, man, we'll, we'll keep in touch with you and, and check back with you soon. Sounds good, Dave. Yeah, I really appreciate you having, on, having me on here and uh, let me tell my story and tell uh, Adipose's story. So, 
there you go. If you want to find all the show notes with all the links we covered, just go to wetflyswing.com slash 187. Also, you can head over to wetflyswing.com slash travel to find out which new trips we have coming up for this uh, this coming year. Hopefully all things are back on with travel and we'll be hitting some pretty killer locations. So check it out there. I wanted to uh, just thank you again for stopping by today. Check out the show. I know you have a ton of uh, podcast choices out there and appreciate your support and the listen today. Looking forward to catching up with you soon. Hope to maybe see you online or on the river. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.